Romans chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I need your help, and we as a people need mercy every day. This chapter is all flying under the banner of mercy. And I pray that you would come with your mercy and rivet our minds' attention and our hearts' affection on what it means to live together as justified sinners, what relationships look like when we are molded by mercy. So, Father, don't leave us to ourselves now in this moment. Draw near by your Spirit. Banish unbelief and banish Satan and protect us from His fiery darts, I pray. May saints lift up the shield of faith and may there be a mighty power of the presence of God in this room, O God, for the converting of 
perishing sinners and for the establishing of saints and for the knitting together of lives in family and for the healing of wounds emotionally and physically and for the reconciling of the alienated and for the encouragement of the downcast and the humbling of the proud. O Lord God, do exceedingly abundantly in this hour than we can ask or think for the glory of your name and the good of your people and the spillover onto families and neighborhoods and nations. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to make a little detour here from Romans 6 and go over and pick up at Romans 12 and talk about uh, biblical foundations for small group life and what they look like when they're lived out by justified sinners. And you might say, that's not a little detour, that's a big detour from chapter 6 to chapter 12. But I want to show you why it's not a big detour. Turn back to chapter 6 for a moment, would you? That's where we were last week. And look at verse 13. It says, Romans six thirteen: Do not go on presenting your me- the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now notice three words. The word present, don't present your members or the members of your body to sin. Notice secondly, the word body, don't present the members of your body to sin. And notice thirdly, whom we're presenting to, don't present the members or do present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, go with me to chapter 12, verse 1, and see if this sounds familiar. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Those three parallels. What's the point? What's Paul doing He's picking up the same theme, and now chapter 12 becomes the the drawn-out, nitty-gritty application in daily relational life of the deeper theological principles being unfolded in death to sin and life to God in chapter 6. This is not a big leap, nor a big detour. This is a continuation of of what we have already begun to see, only briefly, last week in chapter 6. So, I choose it simply because on this uh, small group Sunday, many of you have in your hand or your lap this booklet about our small groups, which I'll, I'll point you to at the end, but here's my motivation for making this little detour over to chapter 12 and asking Paul, all right, you've been talking about justification by faith and original sin and, and imputed righteousness. What does that have to do with small groups? That's the point of today's text. What does it look like when justified sinners love each other and live together in 
small groups? How do you live that out with each other? Let me say a comment here on the word or phrase, each other. In a small town, it may be that that commandment should be heard differently than in a big metropolitan area like the Twin Cities. Because in a small town, there's not a lot of going and coming. There's a lot of stability, and that's good. We need that in our lives. But there's not a lot of people moving in, and not a lot of people moving out. So you live there 20, 30 years, you're gonna, the church isn't going to change very much, probably. But in a church like this, at the middle of a metropolitan area where people are always moving everywhere, students are moving, people are moving, companies are moving, vocations moving, people are coming, people are going. If the phrase each other stays static in your life, something's wrong. I think it's a sign of serious sickness in a church like this if the cluster of acquaintances and friends that you hang out with stays the same for very long. Something's wrong. Because there's people moving like waves across this church and across this city. When Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, go make disciples, he meant make more one another. He meant make more brothers, make more sisters. He meant make the word each other expansive, growing, adapting. So when you hear the phrase, Do something to each other. Yes, you have a present each other in mind. But if it's the same a year from now, something's wrong in this city. Something's wrong if your each other stays the same year after year after year. Now, I'm not into serial friendships. That's not what I'm saying. I'm into growing, growing capacities for love and mercy and and ministry. Growing small groups and multiplying small groups and reaching beyond your comfort zone to rely upon grace and mercy to care for people a little newer than what you have gotten used to over the long haul. So all that just to signal that the phrase each other should not be viewed as static when we read it in chapter 12. What's the point of chapter 12 in relationship to, to how justified sinners live? Just, if you just take the whole sweep of chapter 12, wouldn't you at least conclude justified sinners, that's me and you, if you're a believer in Jesus, who have a right standing with God but are still imperfect in ourselves, justified sinners live in relationships with other people And work hard at them to make them durable and mutually beneficial. That lies on the face of chapter 12. Relationships are hard and take work. Hardly any relationships come easy. A few do. Just hand in glove. And we thank God for them. Most relationships are hard to maintain. Marriages, friendships, and every other kind. They're hard. They take work. Why else at the end of chapter 12 does he zero in on how you treat 
people who don't treat you right. Don't return evil for evil. Bless those who curse you. Live at peace with all men if you can. It is so incredibly realistic at the end of chapter 12 where he simply says, this is hard. This takes work. So, the, the first big overarching thing we can say about how justified sinners live or love is that they do. They, they do. They're together. They don't run away and say it's just too hard to be in groups. It's too hard to be in a marriage. It's too hard to be, have friends. It's too hard to be in a class. It's, I'm just going to leave this thing. That's not what justified sinners do. They come together and no matter how hard it is, they keep working on the relationships God calls them into. Verse 1. Here we go. We're going to just jump through here and take some highlights in the time we have. Verse 1. Of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I count six sermons in that verse. And uh, I'm only going to pick out one phrase and be thankful that we'll come back there someday. And the one phrase I'm picking out is by the mercies of God. You see that? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now that, by the mercies of God, is like a a flag, a banner, over the whole chapter. Every phrase you read in this chapter, every command about relationships and one another life, you ought to read, by the mercies of God, this. By the mercies of God, this. By the mercies of God, this. Because that's the way he begins. And he says, my urgings, my urgings upon you to present your bodies into relationships is by the mercies of God. Now here again is a connection with chapter 6 and 5. Remember how the the thought moved from chapter 5 to 6? Chapter 5 ends with triumphant grace, abounding where sin abounds. And then chapter 6 begins, but don't exploit that abounding grace, but rather realize you've died with Christ and now present your bodies as instruments of righteousness. Well, look here. Mercy abounds in chapters 9 to 11. We could say 1 to 11. And now he begins chapter 12. I beseech you not to exploit mercies, but by the mercies of God to present your bodies living sacrifices and live out in one another life what the mercy of God is. So there's the same grace abounding there, mercy abounding here. Apply grace there. Apply mercy here. How do justified sinners love each other is the same as how do people live out of the mercy of God with one another. True Christians, justified sinners, true Christians, justified sinners, are mercy-moved, mercy-carried, mercy-shaped people. Here's my definition of small group. Small group is a meeting of mercy-molded people. That's a small group. A meeting together of mercy-molded, mercy-molding people. Small group leaders, we gather tonight at 7 o'clock. Talk about this for 15 minutes or so from me, and Dave will have some other things. So I urge you by the mercies of God, present your bodies tonight, 7 o'clock. This is important. We do this once a month. And I want everybody to know that the small group leaders do this with the pastors and the elders. 
once a month because we want to elevate the importance of these groups as the extension of our pastoral ministry into your lives, which elevates their importance as we come to the end of this service in just a few minutes. Meetings of mercy-molded people. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Mercy got you started, show mercy when he sent out the disciples. So you have received mercy, give mercy. You have freely been loved, give love freely. That's what small groups are about. And not just small groups. We have life by mercy. All of life should be lived by mercy. Friendships molded by mercy. Marriage molded by mercy. Parenting molded by mercy. Big political atmosphere these days. Civic responsibility molded by mercy. Think that through. Vocational life molded by mercy. Neighborliness molded by mercy. Race relations molded by mercy. Missions molded by mercy. Now, what does that look like? Let's go to verse 9. If you wonder, why are you going to verse 9? Because... As I simply prayed my way through this chapter, I said, Lord, it would take me about a year to preach this chapter through. I got one Sunday. Help me to discern what the church might need at this juncture in the application of justification by faith. And this is what I've chosen. Verse 9. A life molded by mercy loves without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. If we live by mercy and our small groups are gatherings of mercy-molded people, we will be real, authentic, genuine. No sham, no pretense, no posing, no posturing, no counterfeit, no duplicity, no deceit. What you see is what you get. In the small group. Love each other and be real. That's what it says. Love each other and be real. Small groups ought to be places where people are real and safe. Because they're mercy molded people. Why do we wear masks? Why do we put on airs? Strike poses. Conceal failures. Why? There are two reasons that I would highlight. One, because we are not yet satisfied in the mercy of God so deeply that we don't care what others say. We're second-handers still. Living partly in reliance upon the mercy of God for our sense of acceptance and love and satisfaction and joy and partly in dependence upon what other people say about us. And since we're concerned about that, we present them what we think they want to hear and see. So it's an issue in part, not only, in part of our own relationship with God. We need to be people who are so drenched, so satisfied with the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, accepting us in the beloved, that we say, God is for me, what can man do to me? And not care whether or not they say yay or nay to what we share in the small group. It's us. That's the first thing 
The first reason I think we put on masks is because we're not resting yet, as we ought to be, in the mercy of God. The second reason is a little more complex in relation to the first. We're afraid. We wear masks because we're afraid we won't receive mercy if we show what we're like inside and what we're struggling with, how we failed this week or whatever. We won't receive mercy. Then you ought to say, well, you just told us we shouldn't care if we receive mercy. I thought it wasn't supposed to matter what other people thought. And now you're saying maybe one of the reasons we don't share is because we're afraid we're not going to get mercy. Should you even want to get mercy? Does it matter if you get mercy? And I say, we ought to show mercy. We ought to show mercy to each other. To be a mercy-molded person is to show mercy. So it should be safe. And you should feel that even if you're not wholly satisfied in God's mercy and do have a concern about what other people think, you should be safe because they are molded by mercy. So what is verse 9 calling us to? Number one, it's calling us to be so satisfied in God's mercy that we don't need the strokes and approval of others. That's the first thing. By the mercies of God, be free from craving for approval. By the mercies of God, be free from the need to be stroked and loved. By this small group, rest so fully in God that you're much more concerned about loving than being loved. That's the first call that's on us from this text. However, it's calling us to something else that may seem in tension with that, and it is. But that's the world we live in. Namely, we should be so molded by mercy that we are spring-loaded to show Mercy. That's what this text is calling us to. Not only to be so satisfied in the mercy of God that we don't need others to show us mercy, but to be so molded by mercy, so dependent on mercy, that we're spring-loaded to show mercy when people need mercy, which we all do every day. And if those sound like their intention, live with it. Because the Bible calls us to both of those things. God did not design the church as a place where people go who have gotten fixed other ways. Say that again. God did not design the church as a place where people go who got fixed other ways. God designed the church so that people who have made some efforts in their personal, individual, vertical walk with God to get right with God and get themselves humble and get themselves loving and get themselves whatever they're supposed to be, are not yet there and go to church to have an advance made on that progress. A church isn't a gathering of fixed people. It's a gathering of people on their way to getting fixed by being together. That's why these two things sound like they're intention. 
on the one hand, we want to know God so well that when we come, we're a giver and we're strong and yes, it's all together. That'd be great if everybody came that way. Never works. It isn't that way. It wasn't designed to be that way. The church is a place where your quest and your desire to be right with God fully and to be whole and merciful fully happens at church from other people showing you mercy. So when I say that small groups are a a mercy molded and molding people, I mean this, not just that you bring experiences of mercy to the small group, you come to the small group to taste mercy. And you come to the small group in the knowledge that you're going to lay out before these people a need that you have in yourself, in your marriage, in your kid, in your job, in your health or whatever. And you're going to pray and hope that they are spring loaded to respond with mercy, not judgment, so that you will see in them the mercy of God and your heart then will be more satisfied in the mercy of God because you've seen it lived out in reality. That's what I mean by mercy molded people. It's so crucial. It's so crucial that we get this. Now look at verse 10. I'm just picking ones that I think we need here. We need them all, but this is my preference. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Let's take each of those for just a minute. Look at those words. Devoted to one another and the word brotherly love. Now those two phrases, devoted to one another and brotherly love, are not emotionless phrases. Sometimes people talk about Christian love as being a decision. Love is a choice. Well, there's some truth in that. Not enough. This is more. This is more. To be devoted to one another in brotherly love is a call to affection and warmth. Now you may say, I didn't feel any of that from my brother or mother or father. Family life, which you were being called to here, in my experience, wasn't warm. It wasn't hugging. It wasn't kissing. It wasn't affirmation. It wasn't joy. It was take the garbage out and never getting thanked if you do. So I am saying this text is a call for us to be more than our past experiences. Don't ever limit yourself to your family of origin in what you can experience in Jesus Christ. Don't ever do that. That that is such fatalistic thinking. It should not ever be allowed to get the upper hand to say, because I grew up in such and such a family, I only have capacities for such and such a relationship. That's not true. Of course, you'll be lame and you'll be crippled, but lames and cripples can be healed. And lames and cripples can learn to walk a little faster and a little more stable. We're all crippled in some way because of our past and our own sin. And my point is, small group life or friendship life in the church should be a warm life, a family life, an affectionate life, a brotherly, sisterly life. Whether you felt that ever in your past or not, you can learn it now. Parents, you can break that. You can I know that you can because Christ reigns. And if you say, 
My dad never sat down on a, a chair next to me and put his arm around me for no particular reason and squeezed me and looked me in the eye and said, I love you. I love you. I'm glad you're my son. You can do that. Make it happen in the power of Jesus Christ by the mercies of God. So I'm spending my time preaching on Romans so that you will know that's the way God treats his sinners. That's the meaning of justification by faith adopted into a family shown incredible warmth and love from God. And then Paul says, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Whether you think you can or not, you can. It's happening big time. And it can happen more. Draw young people, draw old people, draw married and single people, draw rich and poor, draw people of all kinds of ethnic backgrounds into your life. Become family. Jesus said, if you leave everything for me, you get back a hundred mothers, a hundred brothers and sisters and farms. And he didn't mean a hundred naggers. He meant a hundred women, a hundred men. Hundred older ones, hundred younger ones, hunger peers, in which they love you with affection. With affection. If you feel like that's a foreign experience, just ask God to do it. Ask Him to change you. Ask Him. He'll do it. And then take the word in the second half of the verse honor. Give preference to one another in honor. You feel some tension here like I do between warm, hugging affection and then honor. Well, they're not. They're not necessarily contradictory. But let's be sure that we see both of these, not just one of these. You might feel like you're the honor person and you're the intimacy person. I'm an intimacy person. I'm an honor person. They're not exclusive. They wouldn't be in the same verse like this if they were. Every human being that enters this building, or any other building for that matter, is created in the image of God and has a unique dignity which should receive honor from another human being. Honor. First Peter 2.17 says, Honor all men. No exceptions. Honor them all. But you may say, wait a minute. This image that we're supposed to honor is so defaced in some people by misbehavior and attitudes and sin and brokenness that it's just not that simple, Pastor John, to say honor, honor this image of God. To which I respond, go back to verse 1 and get it together here. The word outdo one another in showing honor is flying under what banner from verse 1? By the mercies of God. Usually we think of showing honor in terms of justice. You got dignity, I should justly honor you. That's not enough. Christians don't think that way. We don't think in terms of rights mainly. We think in terms of mercy mainly. Our lives live on mercy. If God gave me my rights, I'd be in hell yesterday. I live by mercy. So, when this 
God-shaped person. This image of God comes into your small group, comes into your business, comes into this church, comes into your family or whatever. And he's all defaced. This image of God is defaced with sin. Mercy covers the defacement and you honor the image. Mercy covers the defacement. Love covers a multitude of defacements of the image of God. And so both are true. We need mercy to make it happen. And we need this more justice-oriented honoring to make it happen. We need to honor people and be intimate with people. There needs to be a brotherly thing and a more noble kind of you are created in the image of God. And I will honor you. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. In other words, be practical. Don't let love hang out here in the ethereal, cloudy, emotional thing where you never practically meet anybody's needs. For example, yesterday, Friday night, not yesterday, Friday night, my car died The battery just, or the alternator, whichever, click, click, nothing, no lights, nothing in the parking lot at South High. Barnabas was at a ball game. And uh, he calls me, car's dead. Oh, dear. So I call Bobby and Steve's up here in the corner of Washington, and, and I say, you know where South High is? Would you go rescue my son and try to start this car? And if you can't, tow it to your garage. So they tried, couldn't, they towed it to the garage. So, Saturday morning, I come over, I teach the class here yesterday, and tell them that uh, this happened. It was part of some illustration or something. When it was over, eight guys said, let's push your car home. Oh, I had said, I, Bernie, the, the Bobby and Steve's called me up, and they told me what, what they wanted to do to it. I said, don't touch the car, thank you, I'll come get it. <laughs> and uh, and I, I wanted it at home. So, uh, they said, let's just go push it home. That's what we did. You know where I live? <laughs> Across the way over there. So pushing out around down 11th Avenue there. And luckily one of them got smart and went and bought a rope and we pulled it from 5th Street on home. <laughs> Point. They contributed to the needs of the saints. Listen, if you're in a small group... You're a single woman, say. It's 10 o'clock at night. You live alone. And suddenly some pipe in the bathroom explodes. Water everywhere. Now, I know women. You can fix pipes as well as men. Sorry for the illustration. (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call if dad lives in California? You should call your small group. That's who you should call. The point of small groups is life together of car pushing, pipe fixing, meal eating, temperature taking. Whatever was supposed to follow that in that sentence. You get it? This is practical. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Be practical. And then look at this next one. End of the verse 13. Practice hospitality. I can't believe this. 
The Apostle Paul is the greatest theologian that has ever walked planet Earth besides Jesus Christ. I do believe. And the book of Romans is the best and greatest, deepest, highest, broadest statement of theology that's ever been written down in one space. And he begins it, justification by faith, original sin. And he gets to the point where he says, practice hospitality. When was the last time you ever read a book on theology that said practice hospitality? Amazing. I stand in awe of this man. I like the Apostle Paul. His head is in the heavens. His, his, his understanding of hell is profound. His understanding of human, human nature is without peer. And he says, practice hospitality. Don't you just love people like that who got it all together? Okay, so let's get practical here. A couple of immediate applications. Right after this service is a lunch for all parents, newer among us who have teenagers, put on by the youth ministry. If you haven't locked yourself into lunch, stay and eat with us, families of teenagers, okay? Right through those double doors. Application number two. The women's retreat. Think about that topic if you thought it was cut off this week, it's not. you got another week to register. Women, minister to each other. Get together, show each other how to do hospitality. Some women are absolutely geniuses at this. And others... <laughs> and others are real clumsy when it comes to hospitality. So help each other. Now here's, my, here's, here's the application I really want to press home. Saturday night... This is my suggestion for single people. I don't say single people. When was the last time you ever had a couple over? Perhaps more, more pertinent families. When was the last time you ever had a single person over? An 80-year-old single person. A 50-year-old single person. A 35-year-old single person. Have you ever walked around here and wonder, where does he eat lunch, I wonder, on Sunday? Who's he eat with? Who's she eat with? You ought to ask that question. So, Saturday night, get out your biggest kettle and make about 30 cups of soup. Noodle soup, vegetable soup, clam chowder, whatever. Just dump it all in there and, and, and turn it on and, and make sure it's ready to go. And then whatever you're supposed to do to keep it through the night. And then buy, go to SA or whatever's near you, and buy a stack, a plastic bag full of styrofoam bowls, soup bowls, and a bag of plastic spoons and some paper cups. And then take all that junk that's on the dining room table and just push it off. <laughs> Kick it in the corner. And don't dust anywhere. <laughs> then come to church Sunday morning on the prowl for about 10 people. Or 2. Or 15. And drag them home with you to eat soup. So that you have no dishes to wash except one and a ladle. And you can watch the game with them, or you can read, or you can tell them, I have to take a nap, come back later, which is what I do. 
We have people over almost every Sunday, and I fall asleep at the end of the table by the time we're done. And I say, excuse me, it was good to have you, and I go upstairs. This is no big deal here. They're glad they could be there. They didn't expect to spend the whole afternoon anyway, and I would be absolutely useless if they did. So I'm, I'm telling you, stop feeling like it's got to be a roast and potatoes and carrots and green beans and nice loaf of freshly baked bread and the finest china and the silverware. Get that out of your head. Unless you're one of those incredible women who, for whom that's absolutely no sweat and is the highlight of your life. Do it. The rest of us, we don't understand. We don't understand. But I don't want to cramp your style. If that's a precious thing for you, and you can serve ten people that way, or five or two or one. But look, we've got to get our houses open to each other. That's what practice hospitality means. Single people, do it. Married people, do it for singles. Let's go back and forth this way. Okay. Practice hospitality. So your mom never did it, never set you an example, and you don't know how you're supposed to do it. Your pastor has just taught you how to do it. (laughs) My wife served the president of Bethel College and Seminary on paper plates. We don't don't do dishes on Sunday. We hardly ever do dishes. You know what this is? This is a, the new directory. Family directory. Look how thick it is. These are free. First one to every family. They're in the ministry hall out there. And you can go get one when we're done here in just a minute. And we're almost done. Go get one of these and uh, begin to do hospitality right here. Look at names. I'm sorry these don't have pictures. We don't do those every few years. But at least you can... Look at the name here and go here and, and get on the phone or email or whatever it takes and start to do the networking that it takes to make life happen. Now I close uh, very briefly by looking at verses 4 and 5. Just one comment here. Just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I just want you to see one thing there to to put some theological foundation under this nitty-gritty bowl of soup that I've just talked about. You see the phrase, one body in Christ in verse 5? So we who are many are one body in Christ. You see that little phrase, in Christ? Let me draw it together like this. Back in chapter 5 and 6 and 8, you hear things like, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ. Therefore, in Christ is where we have righteousness. In Christ is where we have justification. In Christ is where we have a right standing with God and we're at home with Him and we're being shown mercy. So, being justified comes from being in Christ. Now he says here in verse 5, being unified comes from being in Christ. The same place that gets you justified gets you unified. That's the profundity of this book, that all this talk about getting right with God by an imputed righteousness is all angled also to get you unified together in this one Christ as 
Sinners who are justified before the same God and having the same spirit. So know that what we're talking about here, as practical as it may sound, is pushing cars and ladling soup into styrofoam bowls. This has to do with justification by faith apart from works of the law. This book is a unity. The Christian life is a unity. The deep things have to do with the the seemingly, seemingly superficial things where we live it out. So, if you're a small group leader or if you work in our Sunday school or Wednesday Connection or nursery, would you stand? That's a lot of people now. So just stand. Now, here's what I want to do. I just want to bless them as we go. The, the, the fall is the beginning of a time where a lot of things happen. They've got nine months of hard work in front of them. They want to be mercy-molded people. We need to pray for these people. All right? So, let me say the words and the rest of you say it with your heart. Father, I thank you for small group leaders. I thank you for Wednesday Connection Kids leaders. I thank you for Sunday school department heads and Sunday school teachers and worship leaders and small group facilitators and record keepers and all other dimensions. I thank you for nursery workers. And I bless these people. And I ask that you would bless them, Father. That you would pour out a very special anointing for this fall's work. And that they would be thrilled that you've called them into this ministry in small groups or in children's ministry. And I pray that you'd preserve their faith and preserve their joy and preserve their families and preserve their health. And so fill them with mercy that they are mercy molded and mercy molding people. Molding little children into how to share their toys as they ought and how it's all based on the free mercy of God in Christ. Molding small groups into loving, evangelizing, caring, soup-feeding people. So, Lord, bless these those who are standing. And now, would the rest of you stand as well, please? So just receive benediction from the Lord as you go and enlarge your each other this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.